these LaCroix are keep giving me the hiccups. <laughs> Did you That's know a true that, story. that this past week was the first time in three years we haven't done a news program? Wow. <laughs> it did. I mean, it did feel weird not to do the news uh, that week, even though, like, obviously, individually, we've each taken weeks off at a time here or there. It felt uh, very dishonest to drink out of my big don't talk to me until I've done the weekly labor news coffee mug, <laughs> having not done the weekly labor news. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I think it was for a plenty good reason. Uh, we yeah. were all very excited to celebrate Lena's wedding, which was a blast and, and a beautiful event, which at which I only very briefly cried. Uh, yeah. And, and it was a it was a really great time. I and think a brief crack. I think a brief cry is a really healthy amount of cry. <laughs> I, I feel like we did a pretty good job, you know, the international being the walking down the aisle song, you know. Yeah, and 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 played on like a very light piano, so it's like anybody who doesn't know what it is is just going to think piano music. Right. It was yeah, it was actually. really smartly incorporated into the wedding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was a fucking blast uh and and thank you to all our listeners for for sticking with us despite us taking a week off. Yeah. <laughs> and to our patrons especially for uh, helping make it possible for me to fly out there for the wedding. Yeah, Absolutely. it was really awesome to meet Dan. Long overdue. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's actually a photo of us. If you are a patron in yeah. the Dewspayer channel in the Discord. Yeah, patrons only if you want to see the sick... Face reveal for the podcast. <laughs> like my right. face isn't already all over Twitter. Stoppage, everybody. Your number one labor podcast. Uh, my name is John. I'm Dan. And I'm Lena. And we're an entirely listener-supported show. So as we said, thank you so much if you support us on Patreon. Uh, if you're not in the Discord, hop in there. It's the only place where you can see the Patreon-only face reveal photo. If you're a patron and you don't have stickers yet, message us on Patreon and we will get them to you. And if you want to help the show a little bit more, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever the prevailing wisdom becomes to leave a five-star review. I'm not sure. Letterboxd, maybe? Who knows? Yeah. I do want to mention a about the stickers i'm down to my last set and i want to make another design so mm. if you are the second person to message me it might be a little bit before i get them to you okay i have a small backup supply of stickers as well if we need to okay. send a few more out i well, i've so been hoarding come them. on bring in the messages you can still get your stickers you can still <laughs> get your stickers message us on patreon we love you so much. But yeah, did uh, before, before we get into the main stories this week, did everybody see the fake priest story on Twitter? <laughs> yeah, I cannot count the number of people who have sent me to that being like, hey, you should talk about this on your show. There's not a lot to talk about. A restaurant in California hired a fake priest to come in and do quote unquote confessions. And then he asked a bunch of like 
employment oriented questions is a very simple story, but super fucked up. And it's weird that I find myself reading catholicnewsagency.com with interest. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I will say I was honestly a little surprised at the speed with which the Catholic diocese rushed to claim, no, no, this was not an official priest. Cause I'm like, I don't know. This seems like kind of your speed guy. Yeah. Well, you know, I feel like with the Catholic church, they've got to have enough on their plate right now with <laughs> well, yeah. totally legitimate problems that actually are their fault. So when one isn't their fault, they're got to be pretty quick to swoop in. <laughs> yeah. Well, and speaking of too much on our plates, since we skipped a week, we have a lot of stories to hit. So we're going to try true. to, power through a bunch of stories so bear with us if we do not go into as excruciating detail as we normally would oh but i love excruciating detail (laughs) (laughs) yeah well unfortunately this time it's like a clip show but it's all new stuff that happened in the last two weeks (laughs) kind of like uh all of the television programs in the uk (laughs) That's right. And speaking of the UK, that's where we're going to start. So we had talked briefly in a previous episode about a historic union drive that has been going on in the UK where the GMB union has been working over the last few months to to build support at an Amazon warehouse in Coventry. And then they eventually officially filed for union representation there. Uh, Unfortunately, now the union has been forced to withdraw that petition uh, for reasons not entirely, unfortunately, unexpected, even though they are very terrible, which is that Amazon followed through on something that they had threatened to do, which is basically double the size of their workforce at the Coventry site in order to stop the union drive. Basically, they said, oh, you have a majority of the workers signed up. Well, not if we bring in 1,500 more workers, you don't. Um, and, and so, Classic. yeah, they had been at the point where, you know, the union had gotten over 800 of the warehouse's normal 1400 workers to sign cards that they were all, you know, uh, definitely looking to sign up with the GMB union and wanted to be represented by them. And so in response to that, Amazon literally brought 1300 new workers into the site and specifically aiming to try and pit, uh, workers who are already at the warehouse against immigrant workers because they, they they specifically brought in primarily Indian workers who are in the UK on student visas uh, in this effort to crush the union drive. The, the immigrant workers have been specifically warned by Amazon not to even speak to other workers, which like – I don't actually even understand how that's like you can't run an Amazon warehouse if the workers aren't talking to each other. That's and, like, it just wouldn't work. <laughs> and also, I don't know, like the nuts and bolts of UK labor law, but also illegal. Just off the top, I'm going to say yes. that's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whether it's whether it's like actually illegal, it's definitely illegal. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and. The thing is, you know, this is just one of those obviously, you know, transparent attempts to both crush the incipient union drive and also try and create divisions within the workforce. But thankfully, you know, the union hasn't responded to this by, you know, being xenophobic or any of that sort of bullshit. They've said, okay, well, this is a transparent union busting attempt. This is fucked up. Amazon shouldn't be doing this. And you know what? Fine. We'll unionize the fucking immigrant workers, too. Like, we'll bring them on board and we'll just unionize the the 2,700 uh, workers instead of the 1,400 workers, which oh, is, man. you know, 
it's it sucks that that's that Amazon is capable of doing something like this mm-hmm. to manipulate an election. But you know, that's the only right response to this sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. and it's kind of interesting too because, like, you know, if it fails, it's just like you know, we we failed against what was an obvious and shitty union busting technique. But if it works, you have now like done judo and used your opponent's momentum to flip around and be like, actually, our bargaining unit is huge now. Like, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So good luck to these workers and I, uh, you know, surmounting Amazon's uh, union busting tactics is going to be an effort, but I'm sure that they can do it. But to move to our next international story, we're going to talk about uh, how in Mexico, the uh, AMLO uh, administration has passed a piece of labor legislation that has given more rights to remote workers. So back on June 9th, the Labor Department issued a new set of requirements for companies to provide their remote workers with uh, with things like ergonomic chairs and also to pay for their internet connections, the kind of thing that they actually need in order to do their jobs. So that's incredibly important and something that I think that when we've talked about remote work in the past, we've talked about, you know, uh, stealing chairs from the office and stuff like that. Well, they don't even have to because now it's required by law for companies to provide remote workers with these sort of accommodations. Yeah, I love this because like ergonomic chairs and internet connections are the kinds of things that like top executives have no trouble writing off on their taxes. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if it's a business expense you can write off on your taxes, then it's a business expense that you can provide as the company to your employees. Yeah, 100%. Um, And the other thing, though, that I also really thought was great about these new rules that the Mexican Labor Department issued was in addition to, you know, these material conditions of work that they have to actually provide for. It also specifically requires companies that are using remote workers to provide them with specific contact hours because one of the things it's very common as a drawback of remote work is because, you know, obviously one of the things that's fantastic is you don't have to commute, which is lost time for all workers, but it also often incentivizes your boss to just feel like, well, when you're at home, you're at the office. So I can contact you and bother you and ask you work things any time of the day. And so they have now included what they're, what's, they're referring to as a right to disconnect, where the, the company is required to set specific work hours and not bother the worker outside of those hours, which like that you know, maybe it doesn't seem on its face quite as material as having to pay for somebody's internet. But like, that is, I think, like, really one of the biggest improvements that you can really make to the conditions of remote work right now, because there's been so many companies that have just used remote work as an excuse to say you're on call 24 seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I Absolutely. think that it's incredibly important. I think even people who are do not have remote conditions have experienced that sort of you need to co- be in contact with your managers, answer questions. Oh, you're the person who knows how to fix this. So you need to do some training over a text message chain. You know, that sort of thing is uh ridiculous and people should be paid for their work uh, or even especially in this case just have the right to not have their phones be on or be connected to their job site outside of their specific contact hours absolutely i mean i can't tell you how mad it makes my boss that i don't check my emails at home and i have a 100 percent in-person job so (laughs) really why would he 
What do you need to check your email about? <laughs> what if what if HR sends out the weekly update and I don't know what the corporate value of the week is? <laughs> By God, if I don't know that it's courage or integrity, I'm going to be very confused when I get to the office on Wednesday. Um, <laughs> uh, so Amazing. as long as we're talking about people who have unfortunately very in-person jobs, uh, let's talk about uh, the second group of strippers in the country to file for a union. So we were very hopeful when we saw the successful unionization of strippers at Star Garden in Los Angeles, that it might kick off a wave of organizing by showing those kind of workers what is possible. And we really haven't had to wait a very long time at all to see the effects of that. So on June 6th, we saw workers at the Magic Tavern in Portland, Oregon, who announced their drive to unionize with Actors' Equity as well. Uh, These workers held an informational picket on June 11th and are fighting for a safer, more equitable workplace. So hell yeah, uh, very hopeful that this will is just the the second step in a in a long chain of unionizations at an, in an industry where the workers have been routinely handled uh, without any care at all. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, it there's like so many problems uh, with that industry that really only like a workers' organization, uh, you know, barring the overthrow of capitalism and the you know the meeting of everyone's basic needs uh, as an intermediate step before that. You know, hard to beat a union for a a way to fix a lot of those problems. Yeah. And to follow up kind of on a great other union that we've talked about in the past, the Paizo workers who create, you know, popular tabletop games like Pathfinder and Starfield, who had gotten their union recognized quite a while ago, uh, back on June 6th, they actually got their uh, first contract which has, I mean, it's really great to hear. They have a contract that improves benefits. There's raises across the board. And there's also lots of new job protections for the workers. So congratulations to those workers. Yeah. Cool. Love to see it. Because, you know, one of the things that we've taught, we've really seen so often on our show is that, you know, it's an incredible victory to win your union, to win your union election. It, it's, it's a super difficult endeavor, so we never want to minimize it. But it's only the first part. And, you know, until you win that first contract, uh, it can be a whole nother giant, cl- long climb. And so to finally actually achieve that is a monumental uh, victory by these workers. So congrats to the Paizo workers and another group of workers who have also been struggling for a very long time for a new contract are the workers at Colectivo Coffee. Uh, these are this is a regional chain of uh, coffee stores in Chicago and Milwaukee, and they were actually one of the first cafe uh, unions that we actually covered on the show at the time that they actually won their union election with the IBEW. They were the largest cafe union in the country, uh, of course, now uh, long since overtaken by the Starbucks Workers United movement. Um, but still, you know, it was a big achievement when the IBEW uh, was able to successfully unionize these workers. But it's been a long fight for that first contract. And finally, on June 7th, the union announced they'd ratified their first ever union contract with the coffee chain with 95% of members voting in favor of ratifying the deal. 
Uh, and so as a part of this union contract, they are covering 23 Colectivo locations uh, in Milwaukee and Madison, Wisconsin, which are represented by lo- IBW Local 494, and the Chicago locations represented by Local 1220. And uh, this the two-year contract that the workers won covers nearly 600 workers across those 23 locations, uh, won the workers an immediate 4% raise, some improvements to existing health care and retirement benefits. But for me, the big thing in here that I saw that they were reporting on was just cause protections from arbitrary firing, which in you know the service sector in for a cafe, to not have your boss just be able to just fire you for no fucking reason... That's really a big shift in the paradigm there. So, yeah, fighting yeah. back against at will employment in Wisconsin is so fucking important. I really can't stress that enough. <laughs> yeah. And we have a quote here from one of the original organizing committee members, Hillary Lesconis, who said, quote, This contract ratification is the culmination of the effort of hundreds of workers over the past three years. We could not have made it to this point without their bravery, the tireless work of the folks at the IBEW, as well as the vocal support of thousands of customers and members of the community. I am beside myself with gratitude for all of them this week. End quote. Hell yeah. It's just really great to to hear of this great victory and it also shows that uh starbucks continues its intransigence as Mm -hmm. they have yet to really even have a single successful bargaining session yeah uh yeah it's it's been a couple of weeks for uh for starbucks there you know you always think they've they've rolled out every trick in the book, every underhanded tactic, every shitty way to attack their workers for unionizing. And then they just lean into it even more because uh, over the past couple of weeks, there has been a lot of stories coming out from both union stores, but also non-union locations, from workers complaining about the fact that managers directed by corporate have been banning all Starbucks stores from celebrating Pride by actually putting up Pride decorations for Pride Month. And it's just like, it's so frustrating because in addition to this obviously being just a, a you know caving to the bigoted attacks by right-wingers all over the country and demonstrating, you know, very definitively that no matter how progressive any so-called, you know, progressive business says they are, they're always going to cave to bigotry if they think it'll make them more money than not doing that. But even in addition to all of that, it's the fact that the company has kept up their re- they're just absurd level of gaslighting by continuing to deny that any of this is going on, even while Starbucks workers are posting, you know, vi- Twitter videos and TikToks of managers taking pride decorations down from stores while the company continues to deny that any of this is happening. Yeah, and I don't remember who it was who pointed this out specifically, but since this are, this also seems like a union busting tactic as many of mm-hmm. the very vocal organizers in the Starbucks Workers United campaign are P- are members of the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For sure. I mean it's 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 honestly it seems kind of I guess like the next step after they decided to weaponize, you know, gender affirming healthcare being part of the insurance plan as a way to try to extort, you know, uh LGBTQ workers out of not supporting the union. Um, 
And this has all been in addition to other retaliation measures like recently removing the ability for customers to tip baristas digitally at union stores, but leaving that in place at non-union stores. And again, continuing to lie about not union busting. Although, finally, for the first time, there was a tiny crack in that, you know, ideological fortress that they're trying to build in this, you know, fake version of reality, where they for the first time actually admitted that they have broken U.S. labor law by settling a unfair labor practice charge case uh, last week, where specifically in a case where workers in Washington state had been offered additional paid shifts working at University of Washington games, basically, you know, doing concessions, but for us, basically a Starbucks I don't know whether it was a card or a food truck or if they have a little booth. but They probably just stayed open later during the games. Yeah, but they were only offered these extra shifts if they were non-union workers. And union workers absolutely applied for the extra shifts, and they were all summarily declined. And so in this case, the company admitted that they did break the law by doing that, and they agreed to compensate the workers who applied for the shifts but had been denied so. So... I'm sure they're just going to continue just straight lying and saying that they're not union busting. But in this one case, you now have both. We now have both administrative law judges who have officially ruled that they have done union busting, even though Starbucks is appealing. And now one case where Starbucks is admitting to it, even while they continue to deny they're doing things like banning pride decorations. Including they have actually rehired some people that they fired like mm-hmm. they still haven't admitted wrongdoing for that even though they've made actions to like bring those people back in it's, it's ridiculous the amount that they're lying and gaslighting people but yeah. there are a lot of unions that are still winning at mm-hmm. starbucks because over the past two weeks we've seen uh union wins at uh, at Spokane, Washington, where they won twelve to four, Evanston, Illinois, where they won twelve to four, Aurora, Ohio, where they won nineteen to one, Bountiful, Utah, where they won <laughs> unanimously with an eighteen to zero vote. Bountiful, Mormon Utah. town names are so funny. They're yeah. stupid as hell. <laughs> uh, there's a store in San Jose, California, which won thirty one to one. And then Strongsville, Ohio, which had our last recorded victory of this past two weeks with a count of 22 to 3. So congratulations to all of these stores who are now getting ready to join the movement and force Starbucks to the fucking bargaining table. (laughs) I Anytime I see Strongsville, Ohio, I always think of Homestar Runner. I think of strong bad emails right away. Oh, <laughs> I was just thinking like, boy, they should have like a really great like shop union logo where it's like, I don't know, a cup with like two huge biceps with like a big rainbow flag in the background. Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I just out of curiosity, I looked up where we're at on the total number of unionized Starbucks. And according to unionelections.org, we're at 318 right Whew. now. So Hell making yeah. our way through the middle of the uh, three digits there. Love road, to see it. Road to four digits. Please like and subscribe. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Unionize your local Starbucks. That's right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so in addition to these many... Uh, Starbucks union victories, we also saw another victory in the 
very recent and and quickly evolving campaign to unionize stores at Barnes and Noble, uh, where we had first just uh, just a few weeks ago we had following uh, the in the wake of the big strike of over nine thousand workers at Rutgers in for relatively unrelated issues, um, workers at the Rutgers. Barnes and Noble location became the first store to unionize very shortly followed thereafter by a store in Hadley, Massachusetts, which has become basically the nexus of union organizing in New England (laughs) with uh, launching the Trader Joe's drive there. But now this week we got the largest store uh, so far to win, which was in fact the company's largest store, I believe in the country, uh, which is their flagship location at Union Square in New York City. On Wednesday, June 7th, the workers at the New York City bookstore voted 97% in favor of unionizing and joining the RWDSU. And this drive already shows no signs of slowing down because in addition to these three stores, there's already a union vote filed for at a fourth store that time in Brooklyn. So congratulations to the workers at at the Union Square store in New York City and very excited to see this drive, you know, grow and spread across the country. Absolutely. And as long as we're covering uh, news stories in the Northeast, we also have a huge union win uh, that we saw on Thursday, June 8th, when medical residents and fellows at Massachusetts General Brigham voted 1,215 to 412 in favor of joining the SEIU as part of the Committee of Interns and Residents. So these over 2,000 workers provide care at facilities across the Boston area, one of the most expensive areas of the country to live in. They have been fighting for pay and benefits that match their 60 to 80 hour work weeks and have already won 10% raises as part of their organizing efforts as the hospital attempts to head off union efforts. So these workers are joining 7,000 other residents and fellows who have helped, who have joined CIR slash SEIU in the last year all across the country as even doctors are feeling the strain of overwork and underpay as U.S. capitalism strains at the seams. And, you know, uh, nothing but support to these folks, especially because if you end up in <laughs> medical professionals care, trust me, you want them to be union and have good pay and benefits and schedules. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of those areas that I feel like I've learned that is really an area I, I feel like I knew absolutely nothing about uh, before we started doing the show. And then even just over the last year, as like the broader cost of living crisis has hit, obviously with the sort of the loudest manifestations in the UK, uh, but then even, you know, here in the U.S., like they said, 7,000 other workers in the last year joining just this specific movement of residents and fellows, essentially, you know, the equivalent of a junior doctor in the U.K., here in the U.S., and that's, you know, that's going to be a lot of the folks. Like, if you go to the doctor, you go to the hospital to get treated, you know, you're going to see nurses and you're going to see residents and fellows, but well before you see, you know, a full-time like seasoned doctor who's actually making a good salary. So as you were saying, John, it's like, uh, you know, we're always happy to see union victories, but I think it's also telling though, that it's like (laughs) one of the things it's supposed to be one of the few good things, quote unquote, about the American healthcare system and its private nightmare is that, well, if at least, you know, if you make it through the hellscape of growing up in this country and you're able to get through the, you know, uh, walls of privilege required to get through to get into a medical school, then 
at least in that case, because it's private and we bilk the shit out of the people receiving the care, the doctors tend to make bank and they're doing great. Whereas in like other countries, they don't make any money. And so they don't provide good health care, except even that isn't true. <laughs> like you have so many of these, these doctors who are doing so much of the actual work, the day to day work of keeping people healthy and trying to help like deal with the conditions that they're facing. And they're making like $17 an hour. <laughs> Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And I mean, it's great to see that big wave of workers organizing. But in another big wave that we have talked about many times, we can go to the REI union where we have seen two more wins. On Friday, June 9th, when when workers at Maple Grove, Minnesota voted 22 to 4, and in Bellingham, Washington, where they voted 40 to 12 in favor of joining the UFCW. I uh, phrase yeah. that in a slightly weird way, but they both happened on June 9th. Uh, <laughs> yeah, two for one. Exactly, exactly. Uh, there are now eight official unionized REI locations workers at the Maple Grove store said on announcing their union drive earlier this year that they hope to fight for higher wages fairer and more consistent schedules higher staffing levels and a more balanced workload as well as just more of a say in their working conditions yeah, so uh, we had a quote from Bellingham REI sales specialist Johnny Cook, who said in a press release from the union uh, after their vote, quote, I feel over the moon. This process has brought me closer to my coworkers. It's given me a sense of pride and joy in the way that I work, and it is just so exciting to me to see everyone hugging each other and everyone celebrating. I feel like as a workforce, we're going to be stronger together, end quote. You know, this is the kind of thing that you never see when the company says, we're a family, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's shocking how much more effective a union is at building trust than doing a bunch of, like, weird trust fall exercises led by some dude with an <laughs> uncomfortable ponytail and beard combination. Uh, <laughs> it just is how it is, folks. I call it like I see it. Uh, but <laughs> we're also really excited to talk about the first AT&T authorized retail store to join the CWA. So like many tech companies, AT&T has been slashing its in-house workforce in recent years and have closed closed hundreds of corporate-owned retail stores in favor of shifting to a franchise model of quote-unquote authorized retailers to avoid having to pay their workers directly. What else? So this has also impacted attempts to organize these workers, um, similar to the franchise model in fast food. So per a report issued by the CWA earlier this year, 90% of these workers report experiencing wage theft, and over 80% reported irregular schedules and being unable to pay basic bills. So if you thought food service was rife with uh, wage theft, holy shit, <laughs> cell phone yeah. stores. Like that is, that those are two of the like highest percentage I've seen in, from anybody we've, I, like that's worse than the report about Kroger. Yeah. And I thought Kroger was like one of the worst, and they, they are one of the worst employers, you know, in the country that actually has a union workforce. But like, and I mean, in this case, most of this is because they don't have a union workforce, but it, 90% report experiencing wage theft, especially considering how bad this country does as far as even educating people to what wage theft is. Yeah. Like, that's incredible. Like, to me, if 90% of workers are reporting, even to, you know, a friendly union, like, survey person that they've experienced wage theft, I'm like, oh, so 100% of workers have yes. experienced wage theft. Wage theft yeah. is the standard, and 10% of them just can't recognize it, even when it's this obvious. 
Yeah. Like that's just atrocious. So yeah, very happy to see though, that we've now got the first ever one of these franchise stores, these authorized retailers, uh, that has actually successfully unionized, uh, with the CWA. Uh, this is a store an Alliance mobile store in Selma, Alabama. And, the union because uh, the formerly when the stores were corporate owned by AT&T, they were union jobs and they were actually jobs that people could go to and have a recent decent schedule and actually pay their bills. Maybe not as good as they could have been, but like certainly not 90% of workers experiencing wage theft and 80% not able to cover their basic bills, which makes these essentially like fake jobs. Like these are not act. They, they, these businesses should not exist providing these, the, this sort of compensation because it's not enough to pay for workers, basic needs. And so now that we've got this first foothold, this first union victory, uh, you know, it would be huge if we're able to start seeing these multiply and the CWA is able to take these jobs and turn them back into the good union jobs that they used to be. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of historic union jobs, let's talk about a historic strike that is probably coming up because we couldn't be covering what's happened over the past two weeks without talking about the Teamsters and the UPS contract that they are currently negotiating. So as we rapidly approach the possible nationwide strike of 350,000 UPS workers on August 1st, uh, signs of the massive leverage that the workers hold with the union run as democratically as it is now that they have the TDU in power and also in this militant manner that they are really creating actual wins. One of the things that the company was constantly saying they would not do is put air conditioning in vehicles, but that has actually been TA'd in the current negotiations. Now, that is just one aspect of many of the things that they are fighting for, but, I mean, the fact that they are going to be retrofitting vehicles that didn't have AC or getting any new vehicles, making sure that they have AC, uh, not only in the cabs, but also the package departments, Uh, package compartments of the trucks is a super big win and is only possible because of these massive threats that the Teamsters have been clearly organizing for. Uh, I mean, again, I cannot overstate how huge this is, but also with how huge this is, we can talk about how 90%, no, not 90%, 97% of the UPS workers voted in favor of authorizing a nationwide strike, which means that on August 1st, if the uh, bargaining committee, who is at the table with UPS trying to make this contract happen and give do their zero concessions bargaining, which is what they have said that they're going to be doing, if they don't get every single piece of what they are demanding... They're going on strike on August 1st, and that is official now because 97% of the people who voted in UPS said, hell yeah, we're ready. Yeah, and like even even if you like, you know, account for the fact that, you know, you're not going to have 100% participation, that is still hundreds of thousands of workers being very adamant that it's like, yeah, we are more than willing 
to walk off the job if these folks are not willing to repair the damage done by the old contract agreed, you know, against the wishes of the majority of the UPS workers back in 2019. So, yeah, this is is huge news, and the, the win on AC is is really big. I, I and although. It is, it's a huge win, and it's only possible because of militant leadership in the union, but it's also emblematic of just how cheap UPS is and how profit-obsessed, because, you know, I saw online, like, a bunch of folks, like, various Teamsters, like, talking about this, and it's, it, apparently, it's, <clears throat> when they order their trucks, they have to specifically request to delete the AC because all of the manufacturers are like, well, of course, by default, you will want air conditioning because this vehicle is operated by a human being on the planet Earth, and therefore you will need some air conditioning. <laughs> but no, and they're like, no, no, we, we don't want that. So, yeah, uh, again, it's, it's bullshit that it requires this level of organization just to get something like that, and yet it is a tremendous win. And so, like, that really does show how worried UPS is about the strike because this isn't like an issue that just popped up over the last year or two. This is something that workers have been fighting for for a long time. And so to see, you know, even we're still over a month out from the strike deadline and seeing that they have caved to this, you know, very big demand already shows you that that there's at least some recognition that like these Teamsters are not fucking around. <laughs> it also tells us that uh, I don't think the TDU is going away. I think that oh, the workers yeah. are pretty happy with the fact that they are back to being a full-on fighting union. Well, absolutely. And I think, you know, that rolls into the other Teamster story that we wanted to hit here where uh, uh, last Thursday, June 15th, we saw the recently unionized Teamster drivers at Amazon uh, DSP Battle-Tested Strategies, who we talked about a couple of weeks ago. They launched the first ever strike <clears throat> by DSP workers at Amazon. And of course... This has led to some very stupid, pedantic, lawyerly bullshit from Amazon who have now been bothering uh, reporters who talk about this strike by saying, don't call them Amazon drivers. They're drivers who deliver for Amazon. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which I'm just like, come on. If you're ta having to go tell people that, maybe it's time to recognize that this whole legalistic argument that you've created to justify not paying and bargaining with workers is just complete bullshit and it's not real and nobody actually thinks that that makes any sense but until they are come to their senses the workers are going to have to try to force them there so they're striking to demand that amazon recognize the union contract that the dsp signed with them and bargain with them directly uh, which, of course, the companies refuse to do, attempting to evade the fact that they are quite obviously a joint employer of these drivers. And Randy Morgan, head of the Teamsters Amazon division, told reporters at Motherboard, quote, workers are on strike today because the only thing this corporate criminal cares about is profits. We are sending a message to Amazon that violating worker rights will no longer be business as usual, end quote. And, you know, that's the sort of stuff that you understand how you get to that 97% in favor of a strike. Because, you know, when you actually have people who are listening to the demands of the workers and like, oh, you're right. Should we take on this biggest company out there? Yeah, fine. Fuck them. Let's go. <laughs> and you can see why people get more invested in their union. <laughs> yeah. And also, I mean, I love seeing these other leaders in the Teamsters kind of parroting the president, Sean O'Brien, because when your leader is calling these businesses corporate criminals, you can too. Yeah. Hell yeah. 
Love to see it. But in our next follow-up, we actually talked uh, a couple weeks ago about the Moon Rabbit restaurant that was closing. Well, the hotel chain, the hotel that was actually, you know, that this uh, restaurant was in has actually caved to the uh, Union Drive and voluntarily recognized them, which is kind of surprising, uh, at least in my opinion, considering that they were basically ready to just cut ties with this incredibly popular, like, top five, right? Or top ten restaurant in the area. Like, it was ridiculous. I think it was actually being named, like, I mean, you know, it's these, it's entirely subjective and they all have different, all these magazines and awards have different rankings, but like, I think it was like on some like top 10 in the country list and they just closed it because of the union drive. But then, yeah, it seems like the backlash, you know, from folks, both the union fighting back against it and specifically calling for a boycott campaign and shaming the company for doing this seems to have been effective because before that they had been adamant we do not want a union here and i mean it's not this is not like a small business or something like it's owned by ihg which is one Mm -hmm. of the largest hotel chains in the world and so the fact that you know yeah these workers at the wharf intercontinental hotel have now gotten voluntary recognition and and the companies agreed to bargain with unite here local 25 I mean that's huge. So I it I do think though from from some of the reading it, it it seems like part of it was of course you know the the public relations disaster that the hotel created for itself by doing this, but also it seems as if a big part of this is just the solidarity that the workers at the hotel had built because you know folks that had been talking to them afterwards are like. Well, look, we're glad they voluntarily recognized it, but like we were going to win the election. So, like, yeah. it's almost more that they're just acknowledging what was already going to happen. Yeah. I mean, we have a quote here from bartender West Waterhouse who told the DCist that he believes that the, uh, that everything, here, I'll just read the quote. Quote, every tactic that they used to try to break support only led to more people joining the movement, end quote. And I think that that quote alone just like really highlights what you were getting at there, Dan. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it's like, I think we've talked about, uh, when we talked about this the first time, it's that, you know, shutting down a restaurant is shutting down a relatively like small margin enterprise. And I think they, the, you know, IHG probably thought that that was going to have a bigger, uh, impact on the workers or rather the opposite impact on the workers right. than, than it had. And then once they saw the writing on the wall with, with regards to their hotel profits, which as we talked about are, it's a much wider, much fatter margin than, um, food service, uh, they said, Oh fuck. Oh shit. Oh God. And they just hit the <laughs> cave to the workers button, which is great, but uh, companies should always hit that button. Yeah, absolutely. But Hey, uh, I, I mean, great job, Unite Here organizers, doing because, uh, you know, getting everybody together and being able to stick uh, stick it out through this and, and these workers sticking together, not being intimidated by this move, and then that paying off where basically, you know, they called the, the, the hotel's bluff where they're like, oh, you're trying to unionize? Well, we'll shut down the restaurant, and who knows what will happen if you keep this union drive up. And they're just like, all right, fine, bet. You're not going to close the fucking hotel. Right. Well, and then, <laughs> So now this freshly recognized union is immediately turning around and is trying to bargain over very imminent issues like protecting the jobs of the workers at the now-shuttered restaurant and making sure that they have work until a new one opens. So it, it comes full circle. In a good way when you do worker organizing. So that's fucking awesome. We love to see that. 
Hell yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Unfortunately, things that we don't love to see. Shit. <laughs> now a story in Florida. Fuck. Um, so unfortunately, we've got to go back to all the anti-worker horse shit that's been going on under uh, Ronald McDonald DeSantis uh, in Florida. I don't. I'm pretty sure that's not his middle name, but I think it would be funny if it was. Um, but anyway, so you know, we talked a few weeks ago about the fact that Florida just passed a new law aimed at destroying public unions, basically trying to do like Janus Fiasmi plus plus plus. Uh, where they made it illegal for there to be pub- uh, automatic dues checkoff for public union workers, except for the fake police and correction officers union and the one real union that's exempted from it, the firefighters union. Um, and then, in addition, mandating decertification votes at any union whose dues-paying membership falls below a certain threshold, which I believe is 60% of the members. So basically the idea is you get rid of automatic dues checkoff, you try and get workers to think their union doesn't do anything for them, and it just to basically make them check out so that then when you force an automatic decertification vote, these workers aren't invested, they don't pay attention, they don't see the ballot, and they don't vote, and then they lose their union. Uh, and so this essentially is this what they were trying to do with the Janus ruling, and they're trying to do this again, but, uh, you know, on steroids in, in Florida here. And they are doing this already with a propaganda campaign where the Freedom Foundation, a which... It's so funny that it's it's always that on the nose. Like in in the U.S., these these astroturf groups, they always have a name. Like you know, the Right to Work Foundation, the Freedom Foundation, Focus on the Family. Mm-hmm. And all of these are basically Nazi groups. Mm-hmm. Um, they also sound it, like daytime soap operas a little bit. Yeah. No. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, just these benign sounding names for the absolute worst people. Uh, and and so. They've begun sending out mailers to union members encouraging them to stop paying dues by lying and saying, you don't have to pay dues anymore and you'll just keep getting a bigger paycheck that way. And basically telling them, hey, even if your union goes away, if the decertification vote happens, you'll still have everything you had in your contract if the union's decertified. So, hey, quit paying those dues. Now you don't have to. And in saying, quote, the union is just a middleman, end quote. That's just a lie. I mean, it's absolutely a lie because even if they don't like, let's say it happens one time and they don't affect things or like let the contract run. What happens when that contract expires? Also, what happens when they're like, oh, there's this new problem that comes up, which is something that companies constantly do, companies and even state institutions constantly do to like just say, oh, this is a new instance and we're going to have the worst response possible. Now you don't have a union to actually collectively like force us to not be shitty to you. Right. Exactly. Now, as odious as these attempts are, as as awful as this law is, you know, it still requires convincing the workers of this for it to be effective. And these similar sorts of attempts that happened nationwide after the Janus ruling did not actually work out to have the impact that the ruling class was hoping for. Uh, in fact, most public workers who were unionized decided, uh, we like our union because we get paid more because we have a union. So, uh, no, I will not be <laughs> stopping paying my union dues. And so, you know, worker public unions are really amplifying their, you know, reach outreach to their membership and getting information out there with the real facts and are confident that this will have a similar, you know, 
lack of impact as the Janus case did with uh, Florida Education Association Chair Andrew Sparr telling the Orlando Weekly, quote, it's an insult to teachers, professors, and other employees in Florida, and it's not going to work, end quote. Yeah, and so and it's not. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> because, in fact, even just in the last month since the bill passed, the FEA reports that they have increased their membership by 5,000 teachers since last year. And while, of course, you know, a large percentage of that was before the passage of the law, I mean, the fact that you already have some thousands and thousands of teachers who want to join the union, those are not people who are going to be like, oh, I don't have to pay union dues. I'm going to stop. <laughs> like, that's not, you've just gone through this successful drive. Those folks, more than anyone, understand the value of their union. And so, you know, uh, the president of the United Faculty of Florida, Andrew Gothard, also uh, talked with the Orlando Weekly and said, quote, folks in Florida, particularly in Florida higher ed, we're not dummies. We know when individuals and groups are trying to manipulate us and mislead us and try to harm us for their own political gain. We're not having any of it, end quote. Hell yeah. I mean, it's really, there's a certain point, I think, where if you you lose the subtle art of trying to convince people that bad things are in their interest, uh, you kind of end up having the opposite effect. And maybe that's just like me being overly optimistic, but I really do think that Florida is a place that breaks the bourgeoisie's brains enough that they kind of give away the game prematurely. (laughs) Well, and I mean, it's not like it's not going to be a concerted effort by these unions to make sure that, you know, some people are susceptible to this sort of propaganda Mm -hmm, to make sure that they get that information out. But I think that you're right that the majority of people have seen this bullshit over and over and over again, that it's not going to take a lot of convincing for someone to be like, "Uh, you know, that's bullshit. And then that person being like, you're right. That is bullshit. Well, yeah, and I mean, like, to your point, John, like, it's it's not as if there's been this very placid environment where mm-hmm. there's, like, pret- everyone pretending that we're all fine, and then, oh, suddenly this bill passes, and they're like, hey, you know, everything's been going great. What do you need the union for? Da, da, da. It's, no, it's been years and years of just screeching attacks and demonization, especially against teachers, and so now it's not too hard, you know, for the union to be like, yeah, those people telling you you don't need the union are the same people who've been calling you groomers for the past year. Yeah, so, they're the, they're the same psychos who freak out and try to drive a car into your picket line when you say shit like uh, <laughs> right. teachers are good, actually. <laughs> right. So yeah, it's it's not too hard to, to point out that it's like those people do not have your best interests at heart. And in a lot of cases, I don't really think there's even any pointing out that has to happen. I think most most folks get this on its face, but. Uh, you know, so we've got another follow-up to, to finish out our, our list of follow-ups before we get into newer stories. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, we discussed a strike by UAW workers at a vehicle battery plant in Ohio operated by Clarios, which is the world's largest manufacturer of such vehicle batteries. And workers had been on strike for just over a month demanding that the company stop trying to force them onto 12-hour shifts uh, with no overtime as basically their base schedule. And so they had previously rejected two tentative uh, agreements that had been reached by the UAW bargaining team, but they have now gotten the contract to a point where a majority of the workers were okay with it, and 78% of workers voted to end the five-week strike and accept the new contract uh, just a couple of days ago as of our recording. And so... The new three-year deal maintains existing eight-hour schedules, uh, blocking the attempt by Clarios to move workers to 12-hour alternate workweek shifts. It does allow workers to volunteer 
for the alternate shifts if they prefer to, uh, but no one will be forced to shift onto that alternate work week uh, from the eight-hour shifts who does not want to. Uh, the contract also provides a 3% annual raise and a $3,500 bonus, which, you know, in the current climate, those are not fantastic. But, you know, the primary thing the workers were fighting for here was to maintain their current schedules and not be forced into these awful, irregular, shitty hours where they never get to see their family. So... And so there was some reporting on this from the Toledo Blade where they interviewed workers about what they thought about the contract. And most of the workers seemed, they, they're very happy that, you know, the contract stops the company from trying to do that schedule shift, but also feel like maybe there could have been more one on some of the other aspects. One worker, Mike Price, told the Toledo Blade, quote, it's a very neutral contract. The company's not a winner, but the union's also not a winner, end quote. Uh, workers told reporters that they'd have preferred to win improvements to hazard and sick pay as well. However, after five weeks, the strike was wearing down both the company due to lack of production and, and running out of their, their you know, backlog stock to fill their orders, but also the workers due to the drop in pay from their normal paychecks down to UAW strike pay, which is higher than it used to be, but it's still only $500 a week. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this really seems kind of like a draw, which... Look, could certainly be worse. You know, they did, they were able to stop the worst things that the company was trying to do, and they were able to secure a raise, which in another year would have been a pretty solid one. Uh, but overall, it seems like some of the bigger issues have kind of been kicked down the road a bit here. Yeah, and hopefully we start to see more uh, momentum coming from the UAW soon as the reform slate kind of gets their bearings. I had seen a couple of workers kind of talk to the Teamsters who are preparing for their strike to get a little bit of that inspiration, and uh, I, I'm really hopeful that they do kind of take a page out of that militant union playbook. Sure. But, and, and I mean, to, electric vehicles are also going to present new and unique challenges to unions. So it's, it's an expanding uh, arena for unions to fight in right now. Yeah. Well, uh, let's, t- I mean, let's talk about expanding arenas because we have talked about the writer's strike for, you know, quite a bit now because they're going into their second month or have they been going for two months uh, they've now I think it's I think it's about two months they've been on strike now. Right. And so when it comes to that, we kind of talked about how there are two other unions that are kind of associated with this this industry, the Directors Guild as well as the as SAG AFTRA. Well, the Directors Guild has actually come to a tentative agreement in regards to their contract, but SAG AFTRA is getting ready for a potential strike. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um, and so to start with the Directors Guild, so back on Saturday, June 3rd, the the DGA bargaining team, which I will say one of the things that's been kind of, <laughs> it's always wild reading about the negotiations when they have them for like these specific unions. Because, you know, when you hear about the bargaining team for, I don't know, say like Smart TD, the rail workers, mm-hmm. They don't usually necessarily mention all the members of the bargaining team because unless you're in the rail union, you know, workforce, you're probably not necessarily super familiar with them. But then when we get the the Hollywood unions, or I guess it's that's not fair. The DGA and the SAG after represent actors and directors all over the country, not just in Hollywood. But uh, but 
then it's like, oh, the the DGA bargaining team consisting of Christopher Nolan and <laughs> Steven Spielberg yeah. and all these other people. And I, I don't say that to denigrate them at all, but it's more, it's like, I'm just not used to having these household names as like the bargaining committee people. <laughs> um, but so their bargaining team, which did include those big names as, um, among others, uh, they reached an agreement with the AMPTP, the you know the trade group representing the major studios and streaming services. And so, as reported by film industry site The Wrap, the New Deal uh, uh, includes average raises of four percent per year. This is for like the minimum rate, because obviously, of course, directors get wildly varying uh, compensation packages. Uh, they also secured a 76% increase in residuals for content streamed in markets outside the U.S. That's a big improvement. Mm-hmm. Uh, more paid preparation time for directors, more creative rights during post-production for directors of episodic content, and some restrictions on the use of AI. Now, that last one is probably going to be one that people are going to want the most expansion on because that's been, you know, one of the big hot button issues of the writer's strike so far. And it's been all over the news and discussions about both, of course, the big AI hype uh, industry that has been established, uh, as well as, of course, many much better pieces analyzing the use of AI as a form of labor discipline, whether it actually does anything or not. And so in this new agreement, the AMPTP acknowledge in writing that, quote, AI is not a person and that generative AI cannot replace the duties performed by members, end quote. And they agree not to use it, quote, in connection with creative elements without consultation with the director or other DGA-covered employees, end quote. Oh, well, I mean, that's good because we're, we're entering, if I saw a tweet today that was like, we have moved from the phase of using AI to represent dead actors without their permission to using AI to represent live actors without mm-hmm. their permission. And presumably without the director's permission as well. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's becoming ridiculous. And and now I will say I did see some criticism of this specific language. And granted, I am neither an expert on computer programming in the AI sphere or law. So, <laughs> but, uh, you know, this is reading a Twitter thread from specifically Stephen DeKnight, who's a member of the WGA, who pointed out on Twitter that everywhere in this that's been shown in the new agreement with the directors, whenever it refers to AI, it is very specifically, quote, generative AI, end quote, a term that refers to things like large language model programs like ChatGPT. But he pointed out in the thread that there are other forms of AI algorithms which can be used to automate a lot of work that's done by directors, especially assistant directors, such as things like coordinating travel logistics and things like that, uh, which are not do not require a quote-unquote generative AI in order to automate. And therefore, it's very likely studios could still automate those processes using computer programs without falling afoul of this new restriction. And so, you know, there's, this is an issue that of course is whenever we come into this, you know, these sorts of spheres of rapid automation, rapid technological development, because very difficult, uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) under the capitalist system to actually regulate it because the state's Who's, who's the one actually enforcing the agreement is on the side of the company. Well, and also importantly, AI is not a scientific or engineering term for Correct. the products that are described. <laughs> it is a marketing and branding term that is being used in legal documents, which is a recipe mm-hmm. for absolute and utter failure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, so, you know, we'll see 
how as time goes on, how this goes, assuming this this contract is ratified. Um, the deal does also include some other good measures, uh, specifically in response to the tragic death of Helena Hutchins on the set of Rust back in 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 deal essentially codifies into the union contract restrictions that are already that are in a law that is going through the California legislature right now, but would apply it nationwide. And this includes things like the addition of more safety supervisors on set, more safety training for directors, and crucially, and I really am surprised this has not been the case before now, a ban of the use of live ammunition on sets. Uh, So that's good, uh, because we don't need that shit anymore and really long overdue to get these basic protections. The agreement also increases the overtime payments for extended days for ex- for assistant directors and extends the basic DGA contract to cover unscripted streaming shows like variety and game shows as well as content made for ad-supported quote-unquote free streaming services. So now the 19,000 members of the DGA will vote on whether to accept the deal uh, through the end of this week on June 23rd. Yeah, Yeah. and it's not like I'm not glad that so many of those things have been included in the TA, but I do think there's also like an interesting class uh, point here where maybe the studios are much more willing to give directors the things they're asking Mm -hmm. for because directors kind of operate in a... I mean, they're workers, but they're also not work. They're like bosses at the same time. They hire and fire. They do an all manner of executive. They perform all manner of executive roles. So um, it's a big time gray area for sure. Yeah, there's there's a little bit of murkiness here with regards to the class situation of directors. Yeah, I found that pretty interesting in regards to these three different styles of unions that are going on in this, because it really feels like they're talking about literally everyone on set. And I'm like, wait. So who is the who are they bargaining with? Well, they're bargaining with people who actually don't do any work at all. <laughs> well, directing is work, but also yeah, no, it's no, not I meant, really I meant work. With the AMT, AMPTP. Oh sure, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like the yeah, the, the studio execs who just sit there and might as well be bankers. Sure. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But as I alluded to, that's kind of what is happening with the directors. We also need to talk about the actors who have basically come out swinging in negotiations by voting in a landslide 98% on June 5th in favor favor of authorizing a strike. This is the highest margin ever for SAG-AFTRA in a strike vote, and the first time for uh, the entirety of the 160,000-member union that has ever had a nationwide strike vote for nearly 40 years. Like, it's, yeah, this it's is not huge. a particularly strike-prone union. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Negotiations are ongoing as the union contract expires on June 30th. There is a statement from SAG-AFTRA director Duncan Crabtree, Ireland, who said, quote, As we enter what may be one of the most consequential negotiations in the union's history, inflation, dwindling residuals due to streaming, and generative AI, all threatening actors' ability to earn livelihoods if our contracts are not accepted to reflect the new realities, end quote. And I think that this is definitely highlighting what we have consistently talked about when it comes to the writer's strike, as well as now the pending actor's strike. Yeah, and, and I really think that we've seen, as the, the, the writer's strike has gone on, just a lot of direct signs of that, that the actors, the members of SAG-AFTRA, recognize that what the writers are fighting is very much the same thing that the actors are fighting. I've seen, like, just honestly, at this point, countless 
like major actors on picket lines in LA and in and in New York City and even in some of the other places that have had smaller picket lines. Uh, and and you've seen a lot of people. I mean, it's funny. I feel like I've seen every single actor who was on Better Call Saul, like at multiple picket lines. Mm-hmm. Like Bob Odenkirk has, I, I feel like has been posting pictures from from picket lines like every week of the strike. So I, you know, I think there's really a, that real sense of solidarity there with the actors that they're facing a lot of the same exploitative challenges that the writers are facing. Yeah, I, I think and, I think Drew Carey has a standing tab open at a pizza yes. shop where he just picks up the order for any writers who are on strike. And this is like the second writer's strike that he's done this too. Yeah. That rocks. Yeah. And it, yeah. I was, re- I guess he paid like $50,000 worth of food for people in the last strike. It's yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. You, you, you genuinely love to see it. Um, and, and so, but one of the more unique issues that the actors are fighting over kind of in parallel with, but a little different from like the use of things like mini rooms for writers is the increased prevalence of requiring actors to provide their own self-recorded auditions. So like, instead of everybody, you know, showing up to a casting call at it in somewhere, some studio in Hollywood and everybody shows up and they have somebody there to read lines across from you in front of the director, they're like, nah, just send us a video basically forcing workers to to bring in you know their their friends or their family members to read across from them record all that spend all the time doing that on their own and send that in basically essentially forcing the workers to to do all that for free in the hopes of getting work when you know before the at least that the the cost of having a space and having somebody to read it off would be provided by the studio now they've just been like no you guys pay for that and so that's something that you know the actors have been fighting for in addition to of course the attempts to automate away much of what they do with ai and continue to degrade working conditions for actors and so but you know sag after this is also another thing that's that's big about how united we saw from that they are from that 98% strike vote is that sag after has not struck that often like alex press pointed out in her article about the the recent developments of the strike for jacobin quote while the union struck the video game industry in 2016 and commercial producers in 2000, the union has not struck the film and television industry since a 95-day walkout in 1980. Wow. End quote. That's a long so, time. 43 yeah, years. I mean, the last time the two halves of, of the, the union, SAG and AFTRA, which, which merged in 2012 and previously had been separate unions. So the last time that all the members of those two groups actually had a full authorization vote was back in 1986, uh, before any of the members of this podcast were born. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that didn't even go to strike. That was settled in negotiations beforehand. So an actor strike in the U.S. has been extremely rare. And yet we just saw 98% authorization and there's just a few short days until the end of this month so considering how much the studios have dug in against the writers and how close we are we have a very real possibility that in just a few days on july 1st we may see like the first ever joint writers and actors strike uh nationwide in u.s history that rocks and i mean we've talked about some really cool famous people we need to report about a not cool famous person. Mm-hmm. Uh oh. 
I'm, I'm sorry, Talking Heads fans. <laughs> it's Your every, guy, David Byrne, sucks. <laughs> it's everybody's favorite new wave pioneer. I'm sorry, new wave fans. You need to switch your allegiance to Brian Eno right now. <laughs> Stafford Beer approached him and Info dumped a bunch of cybernetic shit on him and was like, will you carry the torch for me? And Brian, o Brian Eno was like, thank you for the interest. I make records. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> Yeah. So in a recent dispute over union work on Broadway, David Byrne, who has led many different productions, uh, including, you know, just being the singer of the Talking Heads, but also has made many movies and stage productions, has tried to do a Broadway production with entirely pre-recorded music. And what that means is that he intends to hire or intended as a little like, uh, you know. <laughs> Uh, what do you, I, uh, foreshadowing. a little foreshadowing to what actually comes out of this, uh, zero live musicians. Now this actually goes against union contracts with Broadway musicians, which requires a minimum number of musicians currently 19 on any production, but burn and other producers for the new musical here lies love about Imelda Marcos, the wife of former Filipino dictator Ferdinand Marcos, which premiered oh, no. last weekend, have claimed that their creative vision based on the karaoke culture of the Philippines needs to have recorded backing tracks for the show's singers rather than live musicians, saying, quote, this is an artistic enterprise where the use of tracks in karaoke and how that's developed has artistic merit and value, end quote, uh, says pro producer Jose Antonio Vargas. Uh, I'm sorry, but there's there's no there's no artistic merit and value in a in a union busting Broadway show about the Marcos family. Why don't you <laughs> fuck yourself right into the ocean, David? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and it, and it's you know they've I've been really annoyed by that aspect of it where they're like, no, no, this is all a mis this is all a misunderstanding. This isn't because we don't want to pay union musicians. It's it's just the artistic vision of the show, which is like, first of all, you always say that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And but second off, it's like it's because of the karaoke culture. I'm like, what? So you can't you can? It's a theater. You can do many different representations to show that you're doing something that's karaoke and still have live musicians who you're still paying, which will give you better music and a better experience for the people watching the show. And also, that's I don't what know what I the standard too. in the fucking Philippines is, but live band karaoke is and has always been a thing. Mm -hmm. Bar bands calling up some drunk person to sing Back in Black is extremely <laughs> common. <laughs> yeah, well, and the thing is, if it had just been this one case, you might say, okay, well, you know, this is stupid and you're wrong, but, like, it's it's just, you know, auteurs clashing with the rules and not wanting, not understanding that it's like this is people's livelihoods. But unfortunately, as people have found, this is a long history uh, for David Byrne of, of not wanting to pay people what they're worth. Uh, uh, you know, Dave Jamieson, who's a, a really good writer for the Huffington Post, had found that back during the production of his 1986 film True Stories, Byrne was asked by reporters from the Wichita Eagle Beacon why he had chosen to film a movie in Texas. And he said, quote, 
I was first lured there for financial reasons because it's a right-to-work state, and they have experienced crews in a studio near Dallas, end quote. And so, you know, now that he again wants to use, you know, a live show that has no union members in it, and is again saying, oh, it's a, it's a creative choice. It's like, man, that, that doesn't really ring true when you've been doing this for decades now. it really paints that psycho killer version with him putting the cassette mm. in the radio in a different light yeah and the fact that he recycled a bunch of talking head songs for that movie which he had the rights to but not the uh, actual performance rights where if he had brought the band with him to perform the songs he probably would have had to pay them a lot more than to pay these non-union mm. actors to do renditions of them i only speak about this so vehemently because <laughs> i actually do really love that movie and i think at the end of the day its message stands in stark contrast to burns business practices it makes me really sure. mad uh, yeah, no, it sucks. And and so like, you know, Musicians Local 802, which represents workers on Broadway and, and, you know, the said that, you know, pointed out that the standard contractual music requirement for a venue the size Byrne wants to use, you know, the main Broadway stage needs to be at least 19 musicians and that they even have the possibility for productions to request a special exemption to have smaller crews. But Byrne had just been saying, no, no, we need no musicians, not a smaller crew, no musicians at all, except for the show's main actors. And so Tony Gigliardi, who is a trumpet player and uh, president of Local 802, told the Huffington Post, quote, I'm very disappointed about this. I'd like to believe that he isn't a union buster, but it's hard for me to come to the conclusion that he's anything but a union buster at this point. He's trying to avoid the requirements that have been put in place in order to maintain an artistic standard on Broadway, end quote. And yeah, uh, but thankfully, I will say, you know, this does seem to be a case where the reporting uh, played a real role in creating pressure on Byrne and the producers of the show because following the release of this reporting and a lot of outrage from a lot of people in the industry, uh, the show's producers have finally backed off their union-busting demand. They finally came and sat down and negotiated in good faith with musicians Local 802 and came to an agreement. The union agreed to allow the show to have a special exemption to use fewer artists as long as they used at least 12 union musicians in each show. And so now, thanks to pressure, both public and from the union itself, people who go see the show will be able to actually get the experience of live music and the workers who rely on Broadway for their livelihood, which, of course, if you don't give the workers who work on Broadway a livelihood, you won't have any workforce left to do any of the shows where you do want to use musicians. And so really, ultimately, this is a win for everybody except the libertarian part of David Byrne's brain that for some reason doesn't want to pay work. I have no fucking idea. It makes no sense. And also, like, David, one of the, the most successful thing you ever did, the Stop Making Sense live show, you had so many fucking people on the stage. That is what the public wants from you anyway. It does... It, old man David Byrne makes me so fucking mad sometimes. I read a little bit of his book, How Music Works. It is trash. Whatever you do, oh, stay away man. from that book. You know, he's from Scotland. He moved here when he was two. I know a lot <laughs> about this guy. <laughs> Damn, I did not realize. Yeah. Yeah, burn. It sounds Scottish, but you don't think yeah. about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of burn, I guess. Okay, sure. And staying in New York City. Yowza. Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit about the climate change catastrophe that is ongoing and the specific on uh, repercussions of that affecting East Coast cities uh, and Canada because of the massive amounts of wildfires that have been going on. 
and it, it's really unprecedented. If you actually see the chart of how many wildfires are going on, it is unprecedented. Yeah. No, it's it's ridiculous. So, I mean, everyone, I'm sure, who's listening, you really couldn't miss this part of the story because it was a major event. Uh, on, on the week of June 5th, uh, you had these massive wildfires that are still ongoing in, in Quebec, uh, but they're just, you know haven't had the wind shoot all the smoke down here again, but you had this enormous smoke cloud that had moved to cover a huge portion of the eastern seaboard and really concentrating in the air over New York City. Uh, and sp- The scenes that were coming out of New York that week were really horrifying. You know, you had a thick cloud of smoke that basically turned the sun into a small blood orange in the sky. Uh, I'm sure people saw the the picture that went viral of the Diablo 4 ad in Times mm-hmm. Square with the, you know, the, the sun looking like you know a a ball of blood in the sky and stuff and it's just like you know these nightmarish conditions that are happening but of course this is america so hey business as usual we got surplus value to extract we're not shutting down shit (laughs) and so yeah did you see that photo of people doing like yoga on the roof of the new york (laughs) times i think it was yeah wow man yeah and this despite the fact that this these fires and this resulting smoke didn't just make everything look wild. Uh, this caused the air quality index in the city, which everybody learned that was a thing again, uh, to rise to over 400, which for reference, the worst cities in the world for air pollution on a daily basis, which a lot of them tend to be uh, you know, cities in the global south, which have seen rapid industrial development, but a lack of care for environmental concerns, largely due to domination of most of these economies by U.S. imperialism, which does not give a shit about environmental damage. Anyways, a lot of these cities that have the worst air quality in the world, I believe New Delhi is, is often is on the list. Uh, for a long time before recent changes, uh, there were many cities in China that were often on that list, like Beijing was on it for a long time. Um, but they average when they have, uh, you know, the worst air quality in the, the world at about 200 on the AQI scale. This was double that in, in New York. And yet, most places were still open. They, they got so bad, they grounded LaGuardia Airport in Queens, but they didn't stop anything from, you know, having uh, DoorDash or Seamless mm-hmm. or Uber Eats or Grubhub or any of the other, many other delivery firms that operate in the city. Uh, there were no changes to regulations on their work. And so you had workers all over the city who have to, you know, oftentimes not in cars, but on motorcycles, e-bikes, or scooters, so they're fully exposed to these conditions, having to deliver stuff at an even higher rate because of all the other people who were staying inside. So it's kind of a return back to the early days of the pandemic when there were some restrictions in place, but not for, again, the workers considered, quote-unquote, essential. And so you had you know workers with the delivery collective, Los Deliveristas Unidos, who we've talked about before on the show. They used the, con- the communication network that they had built during their organizing to help connect drivers to sources for N95 masks, and other resources to help drivers who are struggling in the smoke. Yeah, and then on June 7th, Starbucks Workers United reported on Twitter that the company was refusing to allow workers to close drive through windows to help keep dangerous smoke out of stores. The next day, UPS worker Elliot Lewis reported that the company was keeping bay doors open uh, at loading facilities even though smoke was pouring into the building and only providing N95 masks, if workers signed a waiver... Oh, illegal. Basi- illegal. 
It's ridiculous. Yeah, I I saw some people pointing out they're like, well, they it, since an N95 is a respirator, OSHA requires them to like have you sign a waiver. But like if you don't communicate that to people, it it becomes obvious to them that like, oh, you don't want them to wear the N95. Mm-hmm. So it it's not just, oh, this is the law. It's like, well, yeah, the law's written that way for a reason. Like it, it, it is partially to help it, it the whole reason it's written that way is just to shield the company from liability. Because like, look, obviously they should have had to provide N95 masks to all of their workers, but also they should have had to have a policy where like non-essential deliveries I'm sorry these are on pause because everything's on fire. Yeah, they should have just told everybody to stay home and then they should have repurposed the police to basically be a bunch of like sure. like grocery store DoorDash workers and bring everybody a free week's worth of groceries, but our fucking society makes zero goddamn sense. So this is oh, what we so get you, instead. You mean the policy that China enacted at the beginning of COVID? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm stealing my notes from somewhere, I guess. <laughs> But yeah, so no, it, it got really bad really fast. And so like Matt, uh, I apologize for, I'm sure, butchering the last name, uh, Leichinger, uh, who's a, a, a package car driver for UPS in Brooklyn, who told Labor Notes, quote, my eyes were burning. My throat was scratchy. By lunchtime, I was feeling dizzy and nauseous. The whole day, the company never sent any type of message, even being like, if you feel these symptoms, seek clean air inside, which is something they say about extreme heat. It was just crickets, end quote. But thankfully, though, many workers fought back against this lack of action by companies. So on June 7th, workers at the Trader Joe's in Essex Crossing in New York City walked out on safety strike due to the dangerous conditions. Workers were having difficulty breathing in the store, and thankfully... I mean, this is one of those things where it's like, look, I'm glad that these workers came together and stood for up for each other and walked out and fought this bullshit. But it is just, it's always so infuriating to me that the management in the store isn't like, oh, the workers are having trouble breathing. Like I get, I, I, I get it. I can understand it consciously, but like on a human level, it's so, it's so frustrating to process. It's like, so things are more important than the fucking store's bottom line, man. Like, yeah. And I mean, also, but, like, aren't you just a human being? Like, even if you're a store manager who's directly responsible to corporate, at some point when the air that you're breathing is killing your yeah. employees, you have to just be like, you know what? Fuck it. Everybody go home. If they fire me, I don't want this job anyway. Like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so uh, in addition to those Trader Joe's workers, there were also workers at REI in Soho, the same store that the company has been attempting to cut wages at. They were successfully able to use their organization to pressure management into closing their store with pay uh, for the duration of the unbreathable air. So, I mean, again, even when the company is trying tooth and nail to beat the REI union, still demonstrating the value uh, that they can provide, you know, to the workers through their organization. Yeah. Hell yeah. And yeah, really, ultimately, this story is just repeating a lot of the same lessons that, you know, we've had to take away from COVID that like it's... I think a lot of people sometimes, especially folks who aren't engaged, you know, directly in the political process and just watch a lot of it on Twitter, have this idea that, oh, as climate change gets worse and worse, it'll get to a point where everybody will be like, oh, no, it is real. We do have to make changes. And then the ruling class will will just make at least some changes like, no, (laughs) they will (laughs) let this shit get worse and worse and worse and worse because they can just hide. Yeah. They can spend a bunch of money and build themselves hermetically sealed vaults. And yes, they are also under threat, sure, but nowhere near as much of the rest of us. So we can't wait around for things to get, you know, bad enough. Like if we want to actually 
stop any of these things. We have to take action, even if it's just the first steps, like you know, walking out on safety strike like so many of these workers did. It's it's going to fall to us to solve these crises. It's not just going to get bad enough and someday the the rich will acknowledge it and step in and, and actually do something. Well, it's like that yeah. great tweet that just says, like, people posting, I wish World War Three would start so I don't have to go to work. I think you know in your heart that's not true. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and... In our last story for the week, we're going to talk a little bit about the University of Washington postdoctoral and research workers who were on strike. So on June 7th, we saw the latest in a series of massive strikes and organizing drives in the higher education where 2,400 postdoctoral and academic researchers at the University of Washington went on strike. Workers in both bargaining units had been in negotiations for months, but when the administration refused to budge on critical issues like non-discrimination protections, improved childcare benefits, and wage increases to compensate for the soaring cost of living in the Seattle area, the workers decided to demonstrate their resolve with industrial action. And then just after one week on strike, the school came back to the table and agreed to the workers' demands. Oh, looky there. Look who it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, suddenly these demands aren't so unreasonable after all. Yeah. Both postdoc workers and researchers uh, reached their tentative agreement on June 14th and will be voting on ratification in the coming days. With just one week on strike, workers secured a 33% increase to minimum pay for researchers and engineers and 28% raise for postdoctoral workers, improved health care with 100% dental coverage paid by the University of Washington, increased subsidies for child care, new pathways for promotion, just cause protections against arbitrary layoffs, a grievance procedure for dealing with issues as they arise, and a worker-led anti-harassment program. Hell Workers yeah. will vote on this new proposal Tuesday, June 20th. That's a veritable cornucopia of worker protections. <laughs> That's a little strong, bad emails humor for you. <laughs> You know, it's a good contract when like the list of things that were worth mentioning is so such a mouthful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you're winded at the end of the list of stuff that's in the tentative agreement, it might actually be a good tentative agreement. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you just love to see a, a, a strike victory like this where they're like the, the university's like, no, we're negotiating in good faith. And the workers are like, well, okay, well we need movement on these issues. And they're like, well, we don't know about those ones. They're like, all right, fine. Strike. Yep. And they're like, wait, wait, no, we didn't. <laughs> and then oh, wait. like a week later, you fine. Mean everything. Fine. Oh, okay. Yeah. How's everything? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So congratulations to these workers. Uh, you know, you love to see it. And, and this is really great to see like, you know, not just, you know, the wave of organizing and unionization amongst workers in higher ed, but also these victorious contract struggles because winning on like both those steps is so critical to actually not only winning our unions, but making them effective. And so this is fantastic stuff to see. Well done by these workers. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And congratulations what? to us for reaching the meme review. What effort. I want to thank the listeners for waiting for the longest wait for a meme review since the meme review has started. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Well, we're not only is this episode a little long, but we didn't have one last week. 
That's right. Well, we're going to start off with a banger. You may have seen all of the Orca discourse going on, uh, including the article uh, by somebody named Jacob Stern that says, stop cheering on the killer whales. They are not our friends. Someone dug up a photo of that guy dressed like Nathan J. Robinson, and it's perfect. I love it. Um, I I just love the, the QT of it. It was like, nice try, boat. boat yeah, because his name's Stern. <laughs> but uh, this, is a, this is a Lego meme, and it, uh, it just has like a Lego shark, killer whale, whatever they're called, orca. And it says, fuck them yachts. And then the little 13, 12 pound price tag. And then <laughs> under it with a uh, asterisk, it says, yacht owner's tears sold separately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I... The, like, I know The Atlantic is a terrible magazine, but like, was it that slow of a month or something where it's like, oh, yeah, no, we need to publish like this weird Yale Legacy Fail Sons article about <laughs> how orcas are being too mean to yachts. <laughs> like, well, who is this article even for? Yeah, yeah. Ridiculous. We are we stand with the with the whales. That's that's, that's right. That's a podcast stance. Um so our next meme is a Beavis and Butthead meme and uh also a uh reference to uh Antonio Gramsci's famous quote, but uh we have uh Beavis and Butthead here saying old stuff is dying and new stuff is being bored. Uh new stuff is being born. This is the time that things suck. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I like this. I wish that I uh, had a Beavis and Butthead voice to to do the for these Mike Judge characters. Yeah, we need to get your younger brother on the podcast. He has an excellent yeah. Beavis and an excellent Butthead. Frankly, that's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! And then you know, of course, it's a meme review, so it's probably going to have a Desher Zone joint in here. With a very, uh, one that I think every listener can agree to, where where it's just, it's, and also this is one of the ones where it's really hard to tell what the actual title of this meme would be Mm -hmm. because it's constantly changing font sizes and types. So this one, it's just, you've got, you know, your classic big, epic, badass skeleton with a spear and then in just huge green letters, guilty. And then in quotes for all the charges, I guess, unauthorized socializing, too long lunches, alternating time in, time out, excessive web surfing. <laughs> I love stealing time, bitch. I will never stop. <laughs> I do I love, love that they keep sticking to this uh, time theft theme because uh, time theft is fake. You're, wait, is my time anyway? How could I? I'd be still a good true yeah absolutely <laughs> well and it's just like i mean consider what's more absurd me being at work and being like oh i'm gonna go talk to my coworker for a minute or somebody being like you are stealing time yeah <laughs> like which of those is crazier <laughs> well speaking of crazy let's talk about a real mfer who popped off on twitter recently sean o'brien at teamsters sob the one the only and he just tweeted a photo of an of an iCloud, iChat, whatever it is when you use an iPhone. I don't know. I have a Samsung. iMessage. iMessage conversation to somebody named Darren, and he sent a clown emoji, and it says delivered. <laughs> and then he says, do 
nothing Darren, a.k.a. Chief Incompetence Offer of Yellow, <laughs> has a lot to say in public about the Teamsters. After his lies and misconceptions, I shot him a text. No response. No surprise. Tell the truth and do everyone a favor. All caps. Resign. <laughs> this is so killer. It's like, what if like an old guy tweeting on absolute fire wasn't the worst dude you'd ever seen in your life. Exactly. <laughs> I'm like, Sean O'Brien is revolutionizing boomer posts. <laughs> Truly. Because th th this is like good boomer post. Yes. <laughs> like it's still boomer posting because you're posting a, a screenshot of a clown emoji <laughs> you sent to the, uh, apparently, I think, the chief information officer of Yellow Truck. It, it's facile to make like the Trump comparison, but I think it mostly reminds me of that guy in the 420 subreddit who was like, just got a call from my daughter. Declined. Sorry, honey. I'm smoking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah because it's like look is this goofy sure but you know what i want to see way more of this exact energy from the labor movement because do you like you know how many people like will see this shit especially people who are not necessarily going to be in a lot of the same weird twitter meme circles that all our leftist shit ends up in and they're gonna be like hell yeah like because like that's the sort of stuff that people liked about Jimmy Hoffa when they didn't really know about all the awful corruption he was doing mm -hmm. because he would stand up to the bosses. And so, you know, it's nice to actually have somebody do that who's actually honest and is actually militant and is actually fighting for the workers, which is exactly what we need. And so even if maybe it's a little boomery and it's a little corny, I love this shit. Yeah, yeah it's awesome. Absolutely. Well, and speaking of, uh, you know, memes with a particular quality, let's do a leftist style meme with way too much text. <laughs> way too many fucking uh, words. This uh, <laughs> this one does have a conversation between like a, a business person and some uh, fisher, some someone who uh, is laying back on a rock with a fishing pole. But uh, let's do uh, two people on this one so we can have the conversation. All uh, right, I'll be the exasperated businessman. Okay, well I can do I can do a fishing person. All right, why aren't you catching fish? I've caught all the fish I need for the day. So why don't you go out and catch some more? But why would I? Because then you can sell more fish, and then you can hire someone to help you catch more fish, and then you can buy a bigger boat and hire more people to catch more fish, and then you can buy a fleet of boats, and then you can sell your fish to the whole world. Uh, and then what do I do? Then you can finally retire and relax. What do you think I'm doing now? Oh my god, I am instantly obliterated by your genius argument. <laughs> that part's not in the meme, but it's true. <laughs> yeah. I like this one because it, it uh, kind of highlights one of the classic problems of capitalism, the crisis of overproduction. Yeah, well, I mean, really, this is the sort of thing, like, it, it's funny, because I know it's just a meme, and everybody be like, well, this is too road, or it's too many words, or whatever, but this meme is actually hitting at it, a relatively important philosophical concept, which is why the tragedy of the commons is fake. Yeah, well, yeah. and also, like, be there's a level of, like, imperialism as well, where it's, like, plenty of, especially Europe and North America uh, countries come into an area where people maybe they're not super technologically developed but they're living a perfectly sustainable viable mm -hmm. civilization and we're just like oh no 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 that doesn't work for us <laughs> you need to start a bunch <laughs> right. of little corporations and shit <laughs> right what, what do you mean you're not working towards infinite growth like why why wouldn't you be yeah. and because that's one of those things it's like that's one of those things that just held out from liberalism as mm -hmm. an assumption 
Well, that of course you're working for infinite growth. That's what progress is. And it's important to be able to take that step back and be like, no, that's that's a very historically specific yes. way of thinking. That is not some natural, like universal idea. <laughs> it, look, you ask me, I don't really care if I have a cell phone or not, as long as progress means I'm working at 10 a.m. and I'm done at 1 p.m. <laughs> like- <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. Uh, anyways, be more like the cool fisherman and not the lame business person. True. That's Which right. Which is, of course, really the core of all uh, of these sorts of oppositional style memes. Yes, fish, good. <laughs> Suit and tie, bad. <laughs> this will take you very far in life. Yeah. If you learn nothing else from our show, only learn that. Yes. <laughs> well, and it wouldn't be a work stoppage episode with, oh. with these great life lessons. And with that, we're going to wrap this episode. We want to thank everybody for listening. If you want to support us, you can do that at patreon.com slash work stoppage. We are getting into the last run of the cybernetics and labor series, which actually turned out to be longer than we expected so you know get in on that there was the unlocked first episode which we put out last week so if you want to get the kind of uh ground get on the ground floor of that one you can also get all of them by becoming a patron that is how we are supported as an entirely listener supported show Anyway, jump in the Discord and come chat with us there. Write us a review somewhere. Follow us in all the places. You can follow John at on Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. Listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. Solidarity.